we have these crossroads. And you know, either way you choose, your life is going to be different. The universe doesn't exist, but God thinks it does. We have to stop consuming our culture. We have to create culture. Stupidity has a definite evolutionary function. I am all for abolishing stupidity, but before it goes, we should pay tribute to it. Hello and welcome to the Nonsense Bazaar. We're your hosts. I'm Willow Truman. I'm Sequoia Kennedy. And we are starting a rather fun series today. I'm actually excited for this. Hell yeah. Yeah. So in today's episode, we're beginning our series exploring the fascinating life of Jane Led. Sounds like an old West gunslinger. Yeah. Jane Led. Well, she's actually a Christian mystic and spiritual seer whose visions formed the central philosophy for a small radical sect called the Philadelphian Society. It's the most fucking disappointing thing you could have said after. <laughs> <laughs> no, but she it's actually pretty cool. The Philadelphian Society, not the Philadelphia Society, which is a thing now. It's like a Republican think take thing. like Some bullshit. Yeah, not yeah. this. This is named after one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Philadelphia. Okay. Also where the city of Philadelphia comes from, obviously. And brotherly love. Yep. And formed by a, a Quaker, which we'll connect back into our episode later. They keep coming back. <laughs> they do. I kind of, once I took a quiz that was like, which religion is your, are your ideals and philosophies most aligned with? And then it like grafted out on a chart and gave you all of the different religions. Yeah. Fucking Quaker. And I was like, that's interesting. Because I'm not into Jesus, but all the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been reading Dune. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm just thinking about a universe spanning jihad of fire and blood that kills billions. And I'm like, I wonder what that religion is called. And Dunism. In your response to being a Quaker. Right. <laughs> so Jane Led, in addition to being a Christian mystic, she was also a prolific author, having published numerous popular books that are probably sitting on your bookshelf right now, only you just don't know it. Mm. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> one of the great tragedies of Jane Led's life is that nobody knows about it or all of these books that she's written. I've never heard of her and she has a sick name, so you'd think I would have. Yeah. Sequoia, if you please um, read us a couple of, of titles of her work. Yes. The Wonders of God's Creation, manifested in the variety of eight worlds, as they were made known exper experimentally. Is it experimentally? Yeah. Experimentally to the author. Ah, uh, yes. Who mm. couldn't forget that classic? Oh, and, and then we've got my favorite. <laughs> okay. A Living Funeral Testimony, or Death Overcome and Drowned in the Life of Christ, with a further description of the various states of separated souls as to what they may expect will ensue after death whether in Christ or out of Christ. Oh boy. Yeah. Oh fucking boy. A lot of interesting things included in that one. And then I picked out this title because um, in my opinion, it, it's the craziest one. I mean, one, they, one of the longest. They keep getting longer. Yeah. I love a long title. The Wars of David and the Peaceable Reign of Solomon, symbolizing the signs of the times of warfare and refreshment of the saints of the Most High God, to whom a priestly kingdom is shortly to be given. After the Order of Melchizedek, consisting of two treatises entitled An Alarm to the Holy Warriors to Fight the Battles of the Lamb and the Glory of Sharon and the Renovation of Nature. <laughs> Fucking yeah. pour one out for Sharon. Wow. Like... Jesus. That's just a sampling of the many books that she's authored. Yeah, hell yeah. And I gravitated towards her story because she's a woman who defied societal expectations. You know, she had a unique and intimate relationship with Divine. I mean, hell... She led a separatist movement as a blind little old lady after spending her entire life navigating the tumultuous religious landscape of the 17th of 17th century England. So a lot going on there. And so today we'll explore Jane's early beginnings in a devout Puritan household, her encounter with the works of German mystic Jakob Boma and the intense spiritual visions that shaped her teachings, ultimately leading to the foundation of the Philadelphian Society, which we'll talk about in part two. And together, we'll unravel the enigmatic world of Jane Led and her followers as they sought to unlock the mysteries of divine. But first, we'll do what we did do. Did you say the mysteries of, did you drop the the because you were thinking about that fucking John Waters bullshit? The mysteries of the, the divine. <laughs> <laughs> the mysteries of divine. I don't even know that shit. I just, you know, 
I know that's a thing, though. I do have a poster of Divine in my room. Jesus fucking Christ. That's so... Of course I do. That's why you subconsciously dropped it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. What if that... That's really the divine that we're all seeking. Not me. Big old drag queen. So first, we're going to do what we do. We're going to pull a tarot card at the top of the episode, and then we'll discuss it at the end. Hell yeah. I think we already... Did we already use this track of yours? No. Right. We did not. It was uh, Arachne. Yeah. Yes. We have the Queen of Wands. Okay. All right. The watery element of fire. She's standing there with her cat. Yep, she's got a cat. She's, she's got, got a cat. sunflower. She's in golden robes. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about her at the end of the episode. I hate fucking pulling the goddamn court cards. Yeah. They're so I they're hard. Breathing in, feel the love. Breathing in, feel the love. Breathing in, feel the love. Feel the love, feel the love. Breathing in, feel the love. From the earth, feel your love. Feel your love. So Jane Ludd was born somewhere around February to March of 1624 in Norfolk, England. She was raised in a well-to-do family and the youngest of 12 or 9 siblings, depending on the source. And her father, Harmond Ward, was a rich land-owning gentleman whose entire job was basically he owned land. He sounds like a gunslinger too, Harmon like Ward. Squire, yeah. <laughs> right? Fucking uh, Marshall Harmon Ward? Are you kidding yeah. me? <laughs> Squire. Why do I do this sometimes? I just like insert a random ass different type of character and just like hammer it until I fuck up everyone's internal perceptions of what the hell we're talking about. (laughs) Continue. Her mother, Mary. Yes. Devout Puritan, born Margaret Calthorpe, daughter of Sir James Calthorpe of Cockthorpe. Maggie fucking Calthorpe? Maggie Calthorpe. Dual six shooters on her belt? Yeah. No, I... I mean, I've also got a picture of Annie Oakley up in my bedroom. Jimmy Calthorpe? Yeah. Sir James got Jimmy Calthorpe. He's the fucking baddest left-hand gunslinger in the fucking... See, it's easy for me to make this crossover in my mind because Uh, in my room I have um, two picture frames side by side. One of uh, Annie Oakley and one of an angel. Oh. (laughs) Well. You know? I mean, Annie Oakley, you can have angels in the Old West. It's true. I got six shooters too. Except we're back in 1624. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is like more than 200 years before that. Right? Yeah. Different continent, too. Continue. (laughs) Well, of course, growing up in a Puritan household, Jane was exposed to strict religious teachings and practices from a young age. And now, despite being Puritans, the family had to display outward adherence to the Church of England. Kind of a big deal at the time. With Jane being baptized into it on March 9th, 1624. And this so. was like, when, when was the Church of England founded? About a century prior. Okay. okay. No, we're we're going to get into that. Okay. Right on. Right on. This like, is some fascinating shit to me that I don't know a lot about, but it's oh, like, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the Puritans, shall we? Hell yeah. The Puritans were a Protestant Christian movement that originated in England during the late 16th and early 17th centuries, and their formation was a direct response to the perceived inadequacies and lingering elements of Catholicism within the Church of England following the English Reformation. Mm. Now, that had been initiated by King Henry VIII in the 1530s for a variety of reasons, the English Reformation. Yes, it's a thing I have heard of. Yep. Before we talk about the Puritans, before we can talk about any of this, let me briefly explain the English Reformation. (laughs) Excellent. Yes, (laughs) I got you. So the English Reformation happened because of King Henry VIII's desire for a male heir and his need to dump his wife, Catherine of Aragon. So this is that whole thing that I've heard about. The Pope refused, leading him to break away from the Roman Catholic Church and establish himself as the supreme authority in religious matters in England. Old Henry also realized that seizing control of the church's wealth and land holdings would, uh, you know, perhaps offer a few financial and political benefits to the monarchy. Meanwhile, there's this whole European spiritual revolution called the Protestant Reformation, where people started to give the Roman Catholic Church some serious side eye, like they're, you know, maybe that's not for us anymore. So the Church of England, also known as the Anglican Church, 
is formed and becomes the state's official religion with the monarchy at its head. But there's some problems with this plan. Okay. Actually, there's a lot of problems. Because the Church of England's establishment leads to these deep religious divisions within the country. A lot of devout Catholics are unhappy with the break from Rome, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, the loss of their traditional religious practices. What are these new additions? Right. I mean, they're... they're uh... Catholics are pretty serious about all that. Right. So they view the, kind of their whole thing. The Anglican Church to them was like this heretical institution. Yeah. And they sought to restore Catholicism as the state religion. So and it was Henry VIII, you said. Yeah. He was fucking nuts. Yep. So you've got this crazy man running this new version of the Catholic Church. You're trapped on an island with him. Yep. Yeah, that's fucking crazy. So on it's, the other hand, there are some people like the Puritans and other radical Protestant groups that believe the Church of England didn't go far enough in breaking with Catholic tradition. So the, the Catholics are mad at the Church of England for not being Roman Catholic enough. The Puritans and Protestants are mad at the Church of England for being too Catholic. Yeah. You know, you yeah, can't yeah, take yeah. the protest out of Protestant. They're not happy. They want to, you know, they want more thorough reformation, simplification of the church's rituals, governance, doctrine. The term Puritan was actually originally used as a derogatory label for, you know, people who sought to purify the Church of England. Yeah, it's, and that's, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Because, like, the, you know, there's that, that, the whole big, there's a big split between Protestantism and Catholicism. Yep. They're two, they're like two different things. Yeah. They're, that's two different versions of Christianity. And then the Church of England comes in and just, like, cements itself right in between the two as, like, almost like a common enemy, but it stirs the pot. Yeah. So now the situation is triangulated. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, within any group of nerds, factions form. So the Puritans should be thought of as a diverse group that contains a variety of theological views and approaches to reform. You know, yeah. they're not all the same thing. But despite differences, a lot of them shared the same common objectives. So let's go over those. What what does it mean to be a Puritan at this time? Well, number one, they didn't like all the fancy stuff that was a part of the Church of England and the Catholic Church. The big yeah. ceremonies, the super formal clothes, the whole sure. show of it all. Yeah. They thought that that was extra, unnecessary, a little bit off-putting, too pagan, you know? Why do we need all this stuff when we've got the main thing right here? All right. we is the Bible. Yeah, there's nothing in the Bible about, like, fucking giant cathedrals and yeah. funny hats and shit. Like, yeah. Point two, who likes bosses? Nobody likes bosses. No, no, no. Puritans felt the same way about the Church of England. They didn't like that there are these high-ranking guys like bishops, archbishops, telling everyone else what to do, this hierarchy. They wanted each church to have more control over its own affairs, not be beholden to the monarchy. They wanted a more decentralized church structure, often, you know, supporting Presbyterian or congressional models where individual churches had autonomy over what happened within them. Right. Also... Point three, between all Puritans, discipline. Mm. If you're going to be Christian, you got to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Like when I tell myself I'm going to work out this week, but then I don't do it because yeah, oh, yeah. life is too busy and I make excuses for myself. No, yeah, they yeah. believe in actually doing what they said they would. You got to put your nose to the grindstone act, which meant yeah. studying the Bible, praying and trying to be good, faithful people in the eyes of the Lord. And lastly... Puritans held the Bible as the ultimate authority on matters of faith. It was the Bible's word. Hardcore Bible purists. So anything that didn't line up with what the Bible said, they're like, no, we're not doing that. So those are the main points. They don't like the fancy stuff. They don't like the hierarchies. They think that you got to actually be a good Christian, apply it to, to yourself personally, and follow the Bible. So, the Puritan movement more or less pops off, right? This eventually leads to significant religious and political conflict in England because, of course, it did. These are like, you know, if we're thinking of them as a group of prudish nerds. Sure. They don't like how much fan fiction of their favorite series, you know, their religion. There's too many non-canonical editions being added. Too yeah. Fan fiction. You yeah, know? I mean, Everything's well, breaking off into its own set, like... Because well, no, no, no. This is a direct result of the printing press, mm -hmm. right? Like information technology had a huge level up. Printing press happens. All of a sudden, you can people can read the Bible. Yep. Whereas before, it was the priests read you the Bible, yep. you know? And that 
you know, just creates the space for all these different interpretations as a direct result of the increased information technology. Right. Well, really, like the start of the Protestant Reformation begins with Martin Luther. Yeah, so. it begins with a note, you know, yeah. else. I don't think it was printed. People could still write before then, but still, words. <clears throat> so you might recognize this name, Oliver Cromwell. Oh, now he sounds like an Englishman. Yes. <laughs> Oliver Cromwell is this devout Puritan <laughs> who initially represented Cambridge in the English Parliament. So you got Parliament and you got monarchy, right? Yes. So we talked about this in our Jeffrey Hudson episode. We, yes, we did. Yeah. We're going to learn a little more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Charles wasn't fucking, he was spending all his money on goddamn parties and shit. And furniture. And a little guy. Art. And a little guy. Don't and forget the little, the little guy. guy. And a big guy. Yes. <laughs> Go and listen to that one. It's really fun. It really is. So remember Oliver Cromwell. Now, there are tensions between King Charles I and Parliament that are escalating. Yeah. You see, Charles I, like his father, James I, believed in something called the divine right of kings. Yeah. The idea that monarchs are appointed by God and answer only to God, not to yeah. their subjects, and especially, especially not to representative institutions like parliament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's ridiculous. Yeah. So, in 1642, when the English Civil War breaks out, Oliver Cromwell, member of parliament, takes up arms against the royalists in support of the parliamentary cause. Mm. See, King Charles I had fucked around with Parliament long enough. In fact, between 1629 and 1640, Charles decided he was just going to rule without calling Parliament, a period known as the Eleven Years' Tyranny. Why did I never read that it was called the Eleven Years' Tyranny when I was covering this exact thing? I just read a different book. The Reign of Charles. Yeah. Rule of Charles. It wasn't about Charles. It was about Jeffrey. Yeah. Yeah. It's called a few different things. Yeah, yeah. I liked that one. The Eleven Years' Tyranny. It was during this time that, you know, King Charles I implements a bunch of unpopular policies. He starts forcing his subjects to just, you know, give him money for no reason. Goddamn taxes. He also creepily... John, John McAfee's rolling in his fucking grave. Yes. John McAfee would have kicked King Charles' ass. <laughs> He's got this creepy <gasps> secretive court, too. It's called the Court of Star Chamber. And Jesus. It, it just it operates without any juries or anything. It's just totally. You know. Oh, so this is that dark, dark shit. Oh, yeah. This is that wicked dark shit. Right. See, the, the book I read about Jeffrey Hudson didn't paint King Charles that dark. No. Yeah, yeah. People are, are pulled into the court and tortured to extract confession. Oh. You know, usually like political dissenter, um, anyone who opposes the king's policy, you know, they just get dragged to the court of the star chamber. Son of a bitch. So besides for the Star Chamber and the money bullshit, Charles I also sought to impose religious uniformity in the Church of England, promoting a, a high church Anglicanism that incorporated elements of Roman Catholicism. So Charles I, now that he's in charge, he's like, okay, I think I'm going to change the state religion to align with my views a little more. Yeah, fuck yeah. Puritans, they don't like this. No. They don't like Catholicism. Yeah. They don't want it anymore. So they don't take kindly to Charles I trying to make this change in the well, state his religion. goddamn wife was a Catholic. Yep. Exactly. A French to boot. <laughs> oh, yeah. People didn't <laughs> like that either. So Oliver Cromwell, you know, that, that member of British Parliament and Puritan that I brought up earlier. The only guy who sounds like he belongs to the story. Yeah. Yeah. He has a personal vendetta against the monarchy. So, you know, this is, he puts down his pen or quill or whatever picks up a gun, mm. becomes a military commander. He's fucking good at it. Oh. He rises through the ranks and becomes the leader of the parliament's new model army. So he's the army leader. Okay. And the English Civil War lasts until 1651, resulting in the defeat of the royalists, the execution mm -hmm. of Charles I, <laughs> and the establishment of the English Commonwealth. I mean, you bet big. Yep. Yeah. Down with the monarchy. So for the time being, England is governed as a republic, with the country's leadership initially consisting of a council of state, but later evolving into the yeah. rule of Oliver Cromwell as Lord Protector yeah, yeah, of the yeah, Commonwealth yeah. of England. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's just a, basically a monarch now. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, straight up fucking military dictator. Yep. <laughs> Nothing ever fucking changes. No. Holy shit. So during his tenure as Lord Protector, Cromwell implements a range of reforms. He pursued a policy of religious tolerance, 
yeah. you know, but, yeah. you know, only, only tolerant for the people that he liked. Granting greater freedom to various Protestant sects, including the Puritans. However, his rule was also marked by strict control over the press and the arts, as well as incredibly harsh policies towards Catholics in Ireland. Yeah, that religious freedom only extends to his own and those adjacent, because his actions in Ireland are considered some of the most controversial and brutal in British history. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the Commonwealth of England this lasts about 11 years. You know, just another 11-year tyranny. <laughs> you know, 11-year tyranny, good, good, civil war, then another tyranny yeah. just under the Puritans instead of the monarchy. Yeah, I mean, that's a good good number. You right. have to imagine, like, the rest of Europe is just shitting its pants right now. Yeah. 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 What the fuck's going on on that island? Right. <laughs> so Cromwell croaks and his son, known as Tumble Down Dick. Fuck you. <laughs> that's not real. No. Uh, yep. That's true. Say it again. Tumble down dick. <laughs> Tumble down dick couldn't handle the pressure because like no, you know, no, Cromwell dies and he's like, shit, no, I'm never Lord can. Protector now. Yeah. I can't do it. No one wants so no one wants Lord Protector Tumble Down Dick. No. You never hear about him. He just passes England over to King Charles the First son, who's been Jesus hanging Christ. out in, in exile, you know, in hiding. He's like, All right, I guess I guess we need the monarchy back. You can come back. Here's your crown. Yeah, it sounds like a, it sounds like a real tumble down dick. Yeah, you ask me. And so, the Puritans, with their stern faced piety and no nonsense attitude, left a lasting impact on England and Ireland. Played a big role in the English Civil War, giving mm. the monarchy a timeout, only to just bring it back later. Ireland unfortunately got the short end of the stick when Cromwell's hammer came down, leading to land mm-hmm. grabs, strict laws against Catholics, and. Hundreds of civilian deaths and forced labor. Hundreds? Hundreds. I think you might wonder if it was more than that. Probably more than that. Probably more than that. Much. And in the end, the Puritans left a legacy of religious tension and a deeply divided society. A society really not any better than how they had found it. Never is. So there you have it. Now that we're more learned about some of the historical and cultural context surrounding Jane's life, we can get back into her story. We can start her story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, she's just been born to Harmon Ward and yeah. married Calthorpe and Cockthorpe. So because this post-Reformation period was marked by a greater degree of religious diversity and exploration, you know, things are sort of branching out, branching off. Yeah. Jane was able to develop an interest in Christian mysticism that went deeper than her Puritan roots. She could access various religious mystical works that she might not have had access to in previous generations. Yeah. The printing press. Totally. And Jane's family background certainly helped with that. You know, it provided her with access to education and resources. She's a rich girl. Na, 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 yeah. She did. She had all the money in the world. Yeah, fuck yeah. Because um, like we've said in past episodes, there is sort of a, a paywall surrounding the depths of mysticism. Unless you want to go truly fucking crazy. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in, in ye olden days, you know... Someone like Jane, who gets into this from a young age, it's often only well-to-do people from wealthy families that could afford to devote their lives to the study of spirituality, unless you're going that monk life, yeah, that hermit life. Yeah. But, you know, Jane not only fit that bill, she could pay it. You know, she's above that paywall. So, in her early years, Jane received a quality education befitting her father's social standing as a squire. She was likely educated at home by a private tutor, possibly the family's chaplain. And this was common practice among the gentry, with all children receiving home tutoring until the boys were old enough for grammar school. And given her father's wealth and status, Jane got the chance to study all sorts of subjects, Latin, history, religion, math, reading, writing, along with etiquette and social skills. Of course. Yes. And the Ward family also had a particular love for music and dancing. Their oh, home yeah. even had a dedicated room to dancing. They had a rave room? Yes. These oh, rooms were actually shit. popular du- during the Tudor Victorian era. Yeah, yeah. Usually long and narrow and spanned the full length of the house. Um, windows on one side, decorated glass, uh, shiny wooden floors, walls adorned with pictures and fine carvings, large fireplaces. It's often like That's what those rooms the are grandest for. room in the house. Yeah, yeah it's okay. for like having parties and, and dancing. Yeah, yeah. You know, like ballroom dancing because you need space to do that. So it was in this room designed for enjoyment and leisure 
that Jane Ward, at the age of 16, experiences her first spiritual event. She's just some, she's just some fucking rich girl eats drugs at a rave. It's the same archetype. <laughs> All right, so allow me to set the scene. Yeah. 1638. Yeah. It's Christmas. Yeah. This is like a big old party. Yeah. Jane led is a Puritan. She's grown up Puritan. This is all about like adhere to I mean, the Bible, focus the Puri- on the Bible. No, Puritans, Puritans got down. It's a common misconception. Yeah. Like, like they were fucking. Right. Yeah. But this leads to like a crisis of faith within Jane where she realizes, wait a second, this is Jesus's birthday, but we're all just kind of partying. Dude, she's a fucking rich girl on drugs at a rave. Holy shit. Yeah. How many times has this happened? So she's dancing- <laughs> in the grand music room, when all of a sudden she just gets really, really sad out of nowhere, and she hears a voice whispering to her that this wasn't the right way to celebrate Jesus' birth. She needs to stop. Want to say what the voice said? What does this voice sound like? It's whispering. Oh, no, I'm not wh- I'm not whispering on podcast. That's a terrible thing <laughs> to do to someone. Fuck. Cease from this. I have another dance to lead thee in, for this is vanity. That's kind of how I feel when I dance in public. Yeah. Too. Like, yeah. like there's a voice in my head telling me I should stop because I'm I'm embarrassing the son of God on his birthday. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, okay, Jane. So she leaves the party because after this, she's she's not really up to socializing. And she just, she gives up socializing the way she did before and getting involved with family affairs. She kind of goes yeah. hermit mode. Yeah, yeah. She becomes completely focused on thinking about her inner state, about her relationship with Jesus. She doesn't really tell anyone about what happened on Christmas, except for the family's chaplain, who finds her reading in his study one day. He tells her, Stay strong, Jane. Believe that God has a big plan for you, even though you're going through a tough time. And it's a tough time indeed, because for the next three years, she's haunted by guilt over having lied once about something, something relatively small. We don't know what it is. We don't know what she lied about, but she felt immense guilt and anguish over it. Like, I, I wonder what it was. Like telling someone she's five minutes away, but she hasn't left her house yet. <laughs> she's just like, <laughs> I'm a liar. I'm a horrible person. Jesus will never forgive me. Oh, this poor girl. She just has OCD. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or, and <laughs> Spectre's fucking with her. Right? Yeah. At, so she often hears these words in her head, sort of tormenting her over her lie. Whoever loves and makes a lie cannot enter the new Jerusalem. So she she feels like she's on the brink of hell, just constantly reminded of the seriousness of her sin. But when she's 19, things start to change a little bit. She begins to feel God's love and grace once more, and feeling comforted and loved, she even has a vision of a, a formal pardon with a seal. Like, Jesus. you have been pardoned. You've finally been forgiven for your lie. You've suffered long enough. Yeah. Indicating that her sins have been forgiven by God. And from then on... She feels like a soldier under Jesus's presence, being led by his spirit and guided by Jesus. She goes to London because, you know, why not? She's kind of just doing some spiritual sightseeing at this point, like letting the spirit guide her around. And uh, she meets a man there, a man that has similar religious beliefs to her. But her parents, (laughs) they're like, no, nope. And they call her back home to Norfolk and she obeys. And after a few failed attempts at matchmaking by her parents, Jane finally just marries her cousin, William Led. I mean, that's, you know, that's what happened back then. Yeah. So it's 1644. She settles on him. She's like, you know, he's a pious, an upstanding man, whatever. Yeah, he's a fine cousin. Right. For the next 26 years, Jane lives a pretty ordinary married life. No spiritual visions to speak of or that we know of. She had four daughters, only two of whom survived to adulthood. And we don't know much about her marriage with William, but in her diary, Jane alludes to... That first husband who so long hindered my marriage with the lamb. Yeah. First her cousin and then a lamb. My goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it wasn't until William passed away in 1670 that Jane's mystical experiences made a comeback. His passing brought financial distress to the family, and two months following his death, she had her first vision while staying with a friend. She was 46 years old. Oh, shit. And this is when Jane began to record her visions in what is now a 2,000-page spiritual diary spanning 16 years 
titled A Fountain of Gardens. Oh, okay. And the stuff in there is wacky. Okay. Uh, and recording her visions was likely at the suggestion of a fellow named John Portage. John Portage. Yes. She met him seven years prior in 1663, and she moved in with him as his spiritual partner and mate four years after her husband's death. Okay. I don't know. I don't really know how they met. Like. I mean, around. Yeah, because he had been an Anglican clergyman. Sure. But. In the 1650s, he's expelled from the Church of England because of his unorthodox beliefs, and they met in 1663 after his expulsion. So I don't. It's unclear how they met. Sure. She meets him, and you know, at at one point, they form a small group of followers out of his home, and that becomes the Philadelphian Society. And it's also Portage who introduced Jane to the mind-bending world of Jacob Boma. Yeah. And his philosophy. Theosophy. Well, he was, he, was, he was nutty feller too. Oh yeah, it's like a cocktail of mysticism, Gnosticism, Kabbalah, alchemy. Yeah. And Boma's philosophy helps to shape Jane and the Philadelphian Society's beliefs. So before we talk about her first vision in 1670, we have to have yet another history lesson. Yeah. So we're going to learn a little bit about Boma and a bit about a gal named Sophia. Hell yeah. It's worth pointing out, like, we've said it a bunch of times, but, like, Christian mystics at this time were mystics. Yeah, like, I mean, they were operating off of what they had to go off of. Yeah, yeah, like, it's some wild shit. Like, it's really? some wild-ass psychedelic fucking nonsense. Very. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's easy It's easy to, to for a lot of people to not get past the Christian part. Right. You know? And yet? It's fucking wild, dog. That, yeah, 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 yeah. You know? It's fucking... So Jacob Boma, he's this incredibly unique, again, these are both unique people we're talking about, Jane Led and Boma. Yeah. He's this German mystic from the late 16th century, born 1575. I got to check out some of his uh, original books once. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His drawings. Yeah, I forget what the, the story is about yeah. the, the the artist with that, but it was, um, they, I think they like communicated in secret or some bullshit. It's some, some wild, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, well, he was exiled and he had to write in secret for a lot of his life. Fucking A. So he lived about half a century before Jane, and he was raised Lutheran. Mm -hmm. um, he actually died the same year that Jane was born, 1624. And Jakob Boma is one of those people who didn't live a very long life, but yeah. made a very large impact. He sadly died just before turning 50. He was a shoemaker, married with four children, little formal education, but a lot of informal education. Dude loved to read and learn especially about scriptures, about alchemy, world religions. And not only did he enjoy learning about these things, around age 25, he starts having his own visions and revelations about the nature of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. And to the religious community, his ideas made him dangerous. Oh, yeah. This was the reason for him being censored and exiled. So in a modern sense, he's kind of the father of sophiology, if you want to call it that. Also, sophism. Okay. Although... The notion of Sophia far predates Jacob Boma. Right. And so, like most things on the Nonsense Bazaar, we, we have to go backwards again. got to do it again. Before we can move forward. Hell yeah. Because this concept of Sophia is super important to both Boma and Jane Led. Word. So to ask what or who Sophia is requires a bit of explanation. The term itself translates literally to wisdom in Greek. And in Hellenistic Greek culture, Sophia was not a divine being, but a concept representing wisdom. Okay. That would go on to become personified by Jews, Gnostics, and other groups. Mm. Hellenistic philosophers believed that acquiring Sophia was deeply important to one's personal and intellectual development. Like, you know, duh, 
of course, wisdom is important to growth. But the notion of Sophia as a divine feminine manifestation of God, Sophia embodying a personified deity, that notion finds its roots in Jewish apocryphal literature Mm. and is then subsequently expanded on within the framework of Christian Gnosticism. Which is the context that I know it. Yes. Know it in. So in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, wisdom or chokmah in Hebrew is often personified as a woman. Like in the mm. book of Proverbs credited to Solomon, the king of the son of King David, uh, wisdom is described as a woman who calls out in the street, offering her guidance to anyone who will listen. Sequoia, if you please. Yes, but first it's interesting that I can't even do it. Chokmah is in like a modern magical context is uh, like a masculine energy versus being uh, being the feminine energy. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's another one of those things that gets flipped upside and it shows you it's not about the rules themselves. It's about just having the rules. Yeah. Yeah. Um, out in the op- out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On top of the wall, she cries out. At the city gate, she makes her speech. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? Repent at my rebuke, then I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make known to you my teachings. But since you refuse to listen when I call and no one pays attention when I stretch out my hand, since you disregard all my advice and do not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh when disaster strikes you. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you. God damn, Sophia. Oh, that's fucking sick. Like, she really said, you should have listened to me. You didn't. Now I'm going to laugh at your suffering because you should have. Yeah. Nah, it's <laughs> fucking sick. So now it's very appropriate that this image of Sophia as a woman comes to us from the book of Proverbs credited to Solomon because he comes up again in the transformation of Sophia into a divine feminine aspect of God. In the book of Wisdom, also known as Wisdom of Solomon... Solomon basically describes falling madly in love with her and how every great ruler should seek to fall in love with wisdom. He says, Realizing that I was only human, I prayed and was given understanding. The spirit of wisdom came to me. I regarded her more highly than any throne or crown. Wealth was nothing compared to her. Precious jewels could not equal her worth. I valued her more than health and good looks. Hers is a brightness that never grows dim, and I preferred it to any other light. When wisdom came to me, all good things came with her. She brought me untold riches. I was happy with them all because wisdom had brought them to me. I had not realized before that she was the source of all these things. No one can ever exhaust the treasures of wisdom. Use those treasures and you are God's friends. He approves of what you learn from her. Yeah. So Solomon goes on to talk about how God is wisdom's guide and, you know, we all exist through God's power and authority. God is our big boss. God created all these things for us to learn about. But without wisdom as our teacher, without wisdom to shape our understanding, Bina, understanding Mm -hmm. of everything that exists, all that exists is for nothing. So God and wisdom go hand in hand. Yes. Solomon goes on. Wisdom moves more easily than motion itself. She is so pure that she penetrates everything. She is a reflection of eternal light, a perfect mirror of God's activity and goodness. Even though wisdom acts alone, she can do anything. She makes everything new, although she herself never changes. From generation to generation, she enters the souls of holy people and makes them God's friends and prophets. There is nothing that God loves more than people who are at home with wisdom. Wisdom is more beautiful than the sun in all the constellations. She is better than light itself because night always follows day, but evil never overcomes wisdom. Right. So the way Sophia is written about in the wisdom of Solomon highly influences later Jewish, Christian, and Gnostic interpretations of Sophia. Yeah. Well, let's uh, yeah. talk a little bit about the Gnostic yeah. theme, Sophia. Yeah, yeah. It's about time. So, imagine the universe and everything in it is like a movie with a big long cast list and credits. And Sophia, she's on that credit list. You know, she's not. She didn't star in the movie, but she's in the cast list for the movie that is the universe. Sure. You know, she's not the director. She's kind of just this person behind the scenes. That needs to exist in order for the movie to happen. Well, yeah. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, so she's not exactly God. She's not. Right. 
but she is part of the divine realm. She's an Aeon. Yes. Yeah. One day, Sophia decides that she wants to create something of her own without consent from the big boss. Right. Without consent from divine totality. God, um, so, God. Yeah. Yeah. And this means that what Out she created- Out there in the Pleroma. Yep. Mm. What she creates is imperfect, you know? And this leads to the manifestation of the material world and a being named the Demiurge. Yaldabaoth. Yes, a lower level god with, you know, it's described as having the head of a lion, the body of a gigantic serpent. This poor guy doesn't understand where he came from. Yeah. So Mr. Demiurge thinks that he's the ultimate god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the creator of, of this whole thing. Like yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's like people have an impression of Gnosticism, I think, where it's like the Demiurge is um, like in Zoroastrianism, like a dualistic like Ahriman, like the evil force mm -hmm. to balance the good force. Nah, like the Demiurge is like the blind idiot God that doesn't yes. know who's totally cut off from the divine realms. He's just some fucking dumb kid playing with toys, not knowing what the hell's going on. Right. Yeah. So Sophia realizing the consequences of her action that, you know, she's created this, you know, he's, he's not a monster, but he, he's a confused weird thing because he doesn't know what's going on he's acting like a monster she wants to go back to the divine realm like she feels bad yeah she did not mean for all of this to happen but as much as she wants to go back home to divine totality and be mm. like oh you know i didn't mean for any of this to happen well sorry honey you inadvertently brought this flawed <laughs> material world about so you're staying here sucks oh. to suck <laughs> sophia stays and eventually she realizes that this is actually the best place for her to be. And she takes on a role as a guide and helper for humanity. Because mm. After all, she is wisdom itself. And yes, she's here to help guide us to Gnosis, to divine spiritual knowledge. To get us out of the cage that her dumb son made. Yeah. So just like Puritans, the Gnostics also have a variety of traditions, a variety of sects that believe different things. But in certain Gnostic systems, she's closely associated with the idea of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And is even thought to have entered our world in the form of the Holy Spirit. Because like, you know, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is portrayed as a guide, a comforter, yeah. a source of inspiration for believers. So I have to imagine she'd be like the high priestess in the tarot represents Sophia. I have to just assume that. Yeah. Seems it fits. I'll be surprised if it doesn't, but yeah. She's like, she's a godlike being that's here to help humans along their spiritual path and into their reunion with the divine. That's, that's who and what Sophia is. So let's get back to Burma. Well, it all started with a pewter dish in his shoe workshop. So, you know, he's a Lutheran shoemaker. And Burma sees a light reflecting off the dish. And this light, you know, this is interesting because Sophia is described by Solomon as an eternal light shining. Right. This light opens him up to the reality of all things and straight into the heart of God, which reminds me very, very much of Philip K. Dick. Yes. It's 1974. Yeah, yeah. Philip K. Dick is recovering from dental surgery. 74, you say? Dental surgery, you say? 74, you say? Yep. And 74, you say? Dental surgery, you say? Yeah. All right. Okay. Just going to just gonna say, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. This hot delivery girl comes to bring him his medication. Okay. And she's wearing a necklace with a golden Jesus fish on it. And after taking the package from her, his vision is filled with this bright pink light that he understands to be a spiritual force activated by the fish pendant. And after that, Philip K. Dick starts to see streams of shiny fire moving through his environment and entering his body. He catches glimpses of a strange humanoid being that appeared to blend in with the surroundings. He named it Zebra. Bro, he got the Buharic special. I don't know. Hmm. Just saying, it's on my mind. It's just funny that that comes up again. Yeah. Yeah. What I think is interesting is that he names this thing Zebra, and it's like this light being that can enter anything, be animate or inanimate, and like goes into things and is shifting. Yeah. Because, you know, when you use a camera, you can turn on the Zebra mode, and it'll show you light, and it'll show you like traveling Zebra patterns. Zebra mode? Of, yeah. Really? So- I've never done this. It's a camera function that overlays stripes to indicate exposure levels, so it shows you the light patterns that oh, are moving okay. around. 
so it's interesting that he names this thing that he sees that is basically a visible traveling light zebra because then you know that i don't know yeah well i mean you're philip k dick knew what a camera was right i wonder i wonder if it's related i don't know yeah that might be why he named it that yeah so yeah he sees this um portal of pink light open and out of it steps a team of tiny three-eyed extraterrestrials who are there to warn him about a cosmic conspiracy behind the assassination of the kennedys and martin luther king jr bro the aliens tell him that the ancient Roman Empire has been stealthily hidden over the centuries, but is actually still active and is responsible for the assassinations, Nixon being the modern Caesar. But that's neither here nor there. I just thought it was interesting that both Philip K. Dick and Jacob Boma have sure. a spiritual revelation brought on by a shining light. Definitely. Reflecting off of a, a metal object. I, I'm, I'm not going to go any further into it, but uh, mm, I need to look more into the Philip K. Dick because I, I think that's CIA. You think everything's CIA. Well, because it seems like it <laughs> fucking is. Well, whatever's happening to Boma and Jane Led definitely is not. Yeah. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Boma starts telling people about what happened, about his visions. They suggest that he should write these things down. So he does. And at first, he's kind of just keeping this stuff to himself. But also, words getting around... And um, at the suggestion of his peers, his first major work, Aurora, is compiled in 1612, attracting the attention of both admirers and critics. Word reaches town pastor Gregory Richter, who denounces him in front of the entire church and tattles to town council, who issue a decree stating that Burma is no longer allowed to write. He obeys for five years and then begins to write in secret, then in not-so-secret, which eventually leads to him being exiled from his hometown. And he kind of wanders around. He stays at the country estates of his wealthy sympathizers. De he develops a following throughout Europe, and then he goes back to his hometown to die. But, you know, his followers, the, the Bermanists, mm. they later merge with the Society of Friends. You know, mm. Quaker? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 How about that? How about that? Um, so what were some of his ideas that made him so controversial and that, you know, inspired Jane Led? I don't, I don't know. You ever hear of the Ungrunge? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the Ungrunge. It's this, Sorry, it's this being, I don't know why. It's an unknowable being. It wasn't created. It's the source of all existence. It represents the infinite potential from which everything else emanates, including God, which is different from the ungrund. Mm. The only reason we can even fathom its existence is because we exist. If we didn't exist, neither it nor us would have any idea about it. Mm. Because, you know, God can't have knowledge of himself except by revealing himself through his creation. Sure, sure. sure. Yeah, that, yeah, that old chestnut. Yeah. So in Boma's view, reality is just this constant cycle of coming together, breaking apart, Mm. Everything containing positive and negative aspects. He believed that conflict and suffering are necessary parts of life because, you know, if life had no challenges or goals, then we would never question our existence or seek to understand God or the divine. Without struggle, there would be no awareness, no will, no action, no understanding. He actually saw breaking apart from God and rejecting religion mm. as a necessary part of human revolution, not something that should be punished or looked down upon. Mm. No, no, no. Because, you know, right. this thing, the absolute, the one, the ungrund. It's about remembering, coming back to. Yeah. Yeah. It has to break apart, come together. It's the ah. game. You just lost the game. Yeah. Um, so the ungrund has to go through this process of differentiation. That's the second desire, fucking time I've seen conflict. that today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like the ungrund, right? It has to go through this process. Yeah. It's like when kids learn the word no. And they start overusing it because they're so pleased with the newfound ability to make choices for themselves. Like, oh, my God, I can. Yeah, I can yeah, say yeah. No. I can. I can, I can refuse. Yes. Yeah. This state of differentiation is needed for creation to evolve into a new state of harmony, mm. which is that's better than the original state of innocence. Yes. You know, a state of harmony and understanding of union of choice. This allows God to better understand himself by interaction by interacting with the creation that's both part of him and separate from him. Yeah. It's the difference between obeying and fearing your parents as arbiters of control versus growing up and getting to know them as actual people. 
you know? It's this coming together with God after you've rejected him, after you've decided that doesn't exist. And then you come back to him and you say, hey, what's what's this God business about? Right. But you're not doing it because you were born into it, because you blindly obey authority. You're doing it because you're ready to have a union. So that's why Boma believed that free will is the most important gift that God gave to humans. Yeah. Because free will allows us to choose to seek God deliberately. Yeah. So we can, again, create a union with him rather than just exist under his dominion. That's not what we're here to do. Now, just like we have to experience conflict with God to evolve, Boma believed that God has his own inner conflict, a, a push and pull between wrath and love, a dualistic struggle that was necessary for the creation of the universe itself. Mm. You know, God in his purest form is free and peaceful. But... Well, now you're and now you're down to uh, Chesed and Geburah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, just like Sophia had a desire to, you know, create the universe, God had a desire to express himself, to create something beyond himself. This desire led to a sort of darkness, you know, this longing, uh, a confusion, unlike God's original peaceful state. And because this darkness so different from God's original state, it sparked a new desire in God. The wish to return to the original peaceful state. So just like when the Gnostic Sophia wished that she could go back to the Godhead and peace out, you know, it's the same thing. This experience of desire, of dissatisfaction, it leads to a sort of retraction, an inward turn where God focuses again inward on himself, which this inward focus becomes the foundation for all future creations. The unfulfilled desire of God to express himself turns into this divine wrath, this divine anger through which the universe is formed. Yeah. It's the first suffering that the universe ever knew. The suffering of, oh my God, I exist. What do I do now? And this form of God, this wrathful version, can be seen in Boma's view as God the Father, the creator of all things. And when this divine anger turned in on itself, it transformed into divine love. Boma describes this as God the Son. And then the interaction between divine anger, God the Father, divine love, God the Son, fuels the creative energy that makes the universe. Boma identified the continual shift between anger and love as the Holy Spirit. Interesting. The life-giving breath of the universe is just the shift between like, Creation, anger, dissatisfaction, desire, yeah. acceptance. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, mm, I'm, I'm processing very intently over here. Yeah. Um, yeah, Bam oh, is fucking wild. And then there's also this fourth aspect of God, you know, that breaks apart from this well, traditional idea of the Trinity. Well, I was just thinking about like, like that, the, the wrath into love thing. Like, yeah. Uh, we've experienced that in our own lives. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like life you, is just you, a cycle feel, of feeling good, feeling yeah, bad, feeling like, good, feeling bad. But there's both that like that divine love and then that fucking divine wrath that you yep. have also experienced. I guarantee it. Mm-hmm. That it, it goes crazy in both directions sometimes. Yeah. And uh, it's always when it's like meaning. It, there's a lot of meaning inherent in those things. Both are powerful but, forces for transformation. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And then just everything happens in between the the oscillation. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool down period or the warm up period, if you will. Yeah. Depending on which direction it's going in. Just shifting between two states. <clears throat> so then you got this fourth aspect: mm. virgin wisdom or Sophia. This is like sh- sort of a mirror where God can see images of his potential creations before making them real. This is the aspect of God that like, I'm having trouble describing it. You know, you have the Trinity that creates the universe and then wisdom, Sophia, is like the ability to for the universe to reflect on itself. God's imagination. Yeah. The blueprinting room, the... Uh... God's fucking, God's test kitchen. <laughs> uh, God's AI assistant. Right. Like, I, like yeah, I see. It's, it's hard to put words on it, but like, I, I get the concept, I think. 
I mean, maybe it's the we'll... thing that allows God the personification of Himself before creation happens by by giving Him the necessary by giving the God itself the necessary pushback that creates personification. The, right, something like that. Something like that. Fuck, fuck if I know, dog. Maybe it'll become more <laughs> clear if we go through Jane Led's first vision, where she meets the Virgin Sophia. I feel like it'll become more clear if we put more mercury in our food or something. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> or lead. Let's put some more lead in our food. Yes, yeah, some Jane uh, yeah. Led. Sorry, finally ready to hear about the first vision. Yeah, back to Raver Chick. This took place with a pistol. Yes. Yeah. April, sixteen seventy. All right. So Jane, she finds herself visiting a friend in the countryside, mm. you know, taking leisurely strolls through the woods every day, pondering the meaning of life, you know, as one does. She's intrigued by the concept of divine wisdom. Can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> as she's walking, debating with herself whether this wisdom is separate or a part of the deity, a vision of a stunning woman appears before her, claiming to be God's eternal virgin wisdom. Mm. Later, Jane would refer to this woman simply as Wisdom or Sophia. This figure promised to soon reveal God's deep wisdom to Jane and to guide her spiritual rebirth, and then, poof, she goes away. Mm. Jane's captivate, captivated by the vision, but keeps it a secret. She's still staying with the friend. Her friend's like, uh, are you going to hang out with me? Jane's like, no, I'm going to go back into the woods. Is that okay with you? I just need some alone time in the woods. So she fucks off to the woods for three whole days. Just wandering around, reflecting on her first visionary experience, and then Sophia appears again, hmm. even more majestic, this time with a crown on her head. She's all shiny. This time she presents Jane with a golden book containing God's wisdom, which could only be accessed by those who followed her laws. Well, Jane promises hmm. to obey, but, you know, she can't, this book can't be opened like it's locked. Feeling blessed by this encounter, Jane returns to London and she confides in a friend about this who tells her, you know, hey, just just keep waiting. I think you'll get another vision. Six days later, Sophia reappears. This time she's brought some friends with her. Got a whole host of angels and spirits. Oh, shit. She asks Jane, you want to join us? Jane's like, hell yeah, I do. Then the figure tells her, listen. I'm no longer going to appear to you in physical form. You're not going to see me like this, but I am going to continue to guide you spiritually. And she promises Jane wisdom and understanding. Just like that, heavenly woman disappears, leaving Jane with hope for the future and a burning desire to learn more about these beings. And oh, she does. Hold on. Hold on a goddamn second. Is this, is this literally just another one? Another one. <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah, I guess if you could, if you want to call as Ascended Master Sophia. Well, like, or Spectra. Yeah. Or Yoga. I'm thinking yeah, more it's, Spectra it's Ogata. to a divine being and it's guiding them and it's helping them make decisions. Yeah, it comes back with more and all this shit. Yeah, and it, it's and it the keeps same. guiding and yeah. yeah. I, why is it way easier for me to believe it's just one asshole? You know what I mean? Well, it's the divine, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People interacting with something, something else. I think, I, I think time travel and computer from the eschaton is the most fun, but that's just me. Shit though. Yeah, so that's where we're going to leave part one for today. And next week we'll talk about the formation of the Philadelphia Society. What, what the Philadelphian age was supposed to be. Like, and like, if this is. If this week was any uh, indication, it'll actually be way more interesting than an Old West gunfight. I think so. Yeah. No, that was wild. What do we think about the Queen of Wands? I mean... I think that this is like... I mean, it's an aspect of Sophia. Yeah. You know, it's this like... It could also be Jane Lett. We don't know enough about her character yet, but we she really seems don't. like she's a bit showy, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. She likes yeah. showy titles of her books and shit. A bit witchy. A bit witchy, but you, you know, know, in a in a in a in a dancing room. Yeah. Right? Like there's a, a fiery aspect to that. There's a fiery aspect to the titles of her books. Right. You know? Proud. It takes I think, you know, Queen is also a mature. You know, it's a, a mature woman. And it to me that reflects that Jane's whole 
you know, exploration into all of this really doesn't start until she's 46. Yeah, that's true. You know, until she gets widowed, like she's kind of a a matured woman at that point in her life. She met John Portage seven years earlier. She's had seven years to sort of like think about her faith, think about changes uh, to it. And then once her husband passes away, it's kind of like a whole new world for her. Yeah. I was getting caught up on the ages of the different queens in the deck. Never mind. Never mind all that. And there's, I mean, Wands is also like, you know, the lightning flash of yeah, of fire. inspiration, mm-hmm. of uh, of connection with with the divine, that, that the impulse that drives change. Right. Right. Uh, very active as mm-hmm. we see religion being in these contexts. Shit. Oh, yes. Uh, something that reaches out and grabs you. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so yeah, I would say and the combination. And also, like, that Puritan spirit of, like, don't just think, do. Don't just think, do. Although I would... The Queen of Wands is much more ostentatious than I believe the mm-hmm. Puritans would like to pretend <laughs> to be. Yes. But she does, yeah. you know? Yeah, like, yeah, she yeah. She does things. She's an, it's a card of action, yes. I think. Like, yeah, she's, yeah. She's a person that... Of intuitive action. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. It does. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting that that Jane Led sort of, you know, used this inner wisdom, this divine aspect of God, and sort of called upon it to help her make life choices. Yeah, 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 definitely. Interesting. I'm fascinated. Yeah. This is wicked cool. Pick back up next week. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Guys, if you want to support the show, get access to our bonus episodes, Discord server, which now that I'm not in Puharak land, I will be back on much more often. Um... You can go to patreon.com slash nonsense bizarre. You'll get access to bonus episodes. I think I'm going to be talking about Brotherhood of Lemuria this week. I believe it's what I'm doing. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That was a that was another um, mid-1930s Lemurian cult that, as far as I can tell, doesn't have a lot to do with our old friends. Mm. Yeah. But maybe it does. We'll see. Yeah, you can get access to that. Patreon.com slash nonsense bizarre. We'd appreciate it. You can keep us ad free. You can you make this shit fucking rad. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Follow us on social media too. All that shit. Whatever. Do it. Yep. Come back Find next week. Find us on Twitter, Instagram. Yeah. All that good stuff. Yeah. All right. Take care. Peace. Peace out.